a builder who was going to build a uh, subdivision that would be all white if it was going to be located near where African-Americans were living because the federal manual said that would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. That's what the federal manual said. Uh, There's nothing de facto about this. This was a racially explicit, unconstitutional program practiced uh, by the federal government. Those homes at the time, uh, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, are sold for, in today's money, about $100,000 a piece, something easily affordable to returning war veterans, black or white, especially returning war veterans, because no down payment was required for them. Whites, as I say, were subsidized to do this, African-Americans prohibited. Well, today, as you know, the homes in those suburbs uh, no longer sell for $100,000 a piece. They sell for dollars, $500,000, sometimes a million dollars or more, depending on the region of the country. The white working class families who became middle class as a result of this program gained wealth equity as their homes appreciated in value. They used that wealth to send their children to college. They used it to take care of emergencies, perhaps medical or temporary unemployment. They used it to subsidize their retirements. And they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. African-Americans were prohibited by federal policy from participating in this wealth-generating program. The result is that today, Although African-American incomes, on average, are about 60% of white incomes, family incomes, African-American household wealth is only about 5% of white household wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that demands a remedy. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. You've heard many guests on this podcast talk about abolition and slavery. Race is obviously a major issue in this country and the world. If you listen to my episode with my mom, You heard about my growing up as myself a racial minority for a couple of years in an economically depressed neighborhood in Philadelphia and also in Ahmedabad, India. You heard me being a victim of violent crime there. You also heard my mom talk about working in real estate, as well as herself and my father being rejected from homes because of religious laws. So she intimately experienced redlining and other forms of discrimination in her work and in her life. It's front page news how pollution and its costs, the environment, what this podcast is about, it correlates with race as well as economics. You may have noticed my surprise when talking to my mom, when she pointed out, however difficult our years were in impoverished neighborhoods, she pointed out that the law explicitly disallowed our black neighbors from exiting as we could. I didn't really realize that before. Today's guest, Richard Rothstein, is one of the experts in how the law has clearly and explicitly kept freedom, prosperity, longevity, opportunity, and more from people based on their skin color. This is no hard-to-believe conspiracy. These are not tenuous claims or cancel culture labeling. He shows how laws in black and white, the law says you can't rent to blacks. These homes are not available to them. Across the country and in many spheres of life, for generations this has happened, and it's no secret. Plus, he traces the repercussions that occur when one group can do things that another can't and how they ripple through society for generations. Is his material valuable? Is this just him talking? Here's one measure. I'm happy that my book, Leadership Step-by-Step, has over 100 reviews. 
averaging close to five stars. I know a lot of authors, editors, book marketers, people in the industry. People talk about and they seek that three-digit barrier because people look at reviews. If you can get over 100, that's a big deal. Richard Rothstein wrote the book, The Color of Law. It's a book on laws. That's like a book on accounting. How many people want to read books on law? Not a courtroom drama, on the law. His book has over 12,000 reviews, just about all five stars. As usual, I bring the personal and leadership aspects of him and his work. I'll link it in the notes to some videos of him describing his work in more detail to whet your appetite to read the book. But I'm going to focus on bringing you the things that you don't get elsewhere of him, the story behind the story. Here's Richard. Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Richard Rothstein. Richard, how are you doing? I thank you. Very glad to have you. I have to say your work is some of the most thought-provoking and life-changing of stuff that I've come across. I know that we will not get a chance to more than scratch the surface on it, but I hope we get to get some of the, the gist of it. And I'll certainly put in the links for people to learn more about your, your work. The, uh, I mean, The Color of the Law seems to be the main piece of it. And Most recent, <laughs> not the main. The most recent. I spent, I spent most of the, the previous decades writing about education policy, not about the racial segregation. And I have a number of books on that topic. Uh, but The Color of Law is certainly the most recent. I will have to have you back a second time to talk about education then. And I hope to start by reviewing, if you can review it in a few minutes, what you have And then I'd like to look at it from a leadership perspective, because I think that people listening to this podcast want to change their lives. They want to change people around them. Knowing where things come from is a big piece of that. And knowing the people who brought it about is very important. And then I don't know if we'll have time for this, but in the preparing for our conversation here, it struck me how much this connects to my life. And I I defy any American, anyone who looks at America these days, to learn your work and not have it affect them deeply personally and look back at major parts of, I'll speak for myself, that looking back at major parts of my life. I'm not sure if we'll get to that, but I want to ask you one question at the beginning. Is that something you get a lot? Do people come to you and say, this changed my perspective on how I grew up, my community, my neighborhood, my nation, and, and feel very personal, strong emotion about it? Yes, many, many do. Many, uh, complain to me that they never learned this in high school. They never taught this, were taught this uh, when um, they were in school. They should have known about this. It uh, propels many of them to go uh, look at the deeds in the homes they live in or the homes they grew up in. And they are shocked to see that uh, they're living in a home that was for Caucasians only. And I'm talking both about whites and African-Americans who are propelled to do this. So I get many, many personal stories of the kind that you're talking about. That's partly reassuring to hear. And it's something, I mean, it's something that will come up in conversation a lot. And I think it's most valuable for listeners to review your work because I think it will affect them and knowing what you've done or what you've, what you've learned and put out there that so many things, I'm going to preface it that uh, do people compare your work with Guns, Germs, and Steel much by Jared Diamond? No, I've never heard that comparison. No, no, I haven't. People frequently say it's the most important book they ever read because it explains the communities in which they grew up that yeah. they never understood before. You know, the subtitle of The Color of Law is a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. And uh, this was once well known. I uh, did very little in this book that... Um, anybody couldn't have done with uh, easily accessible uh, secondary sources, uh, books that were uh, widely read 
25, 30, 40 years ago. So that's the reaction that people get uh, and have frequently. Because there's so many things that you look at in the world, you think, well, I don't know why it's that way. And you come up with various different answers. And then your work shows there's a clear, distinct reason. And suddenly things fall into place that, that we were very uncomfortable for. They're still uncomfortable now, but in different ways. So I wonder if you could, could you summarize the de facto versus the legal and... Sure. What the book's argument is that the widespread myth, and we, I call it a myth, that the reason that every metropolitan area in this country is racially segregated is because of private activity, because businesses like banks and real estate agencies and insurance companies discriminated and excluded African-Americans from white neighborhoods and disinvested in black neighborhoods by refusing to extend traditional mortgages there that uh, private actors like um, homeowners and uh, landlords refuse to sell or rent to African-Americans. Or maybe they think it's because people just like to live with each other of the same race. Uh, We all feel more comfortable that way. Or maybe they think it's because of um, economics. African-Americans on average have uh, lower incomes than whites. Uh, On average, not all, but on average. And so many African-Americans can't afford to move to uh, better resourced neighborhoods. And all of these individual, personal, uh, bigoted, but uh, not governmental decisions is what's created racial segregation. The Supreme Court has endorsed this view explicitly. It says that we have de facto segregation, which uh, from which uh, government had no responsibility. And uh, the Supreme Court says that, uh, and most of us understand and believe, that if it happened by accident, it happened naturally, it can only unhappen by accident. It can only unhappen naturally. So this myth that we have is a paralyzing myth because it makes us believe that there's nothing we can do about this, that we just have to wait for it to fix itself. Well, uh, you know, this I'm not a, a professional historian, but the, this book has been out now for almost four years. Not a single fact that I describe in this book has been challenged by a professional historian. It's been reviewed by historical uh, journals and and, uh, professionals, as I say, and they all confirm that this is true. We've just um, ignored it. And so the argument of the book is that because racial segregation in every metropolitan area is not de facto, it was created explicitly by racially explicit government policy at the federal, state, and local levels, policies that were designed to ensure that African-Americans and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area. That's an unconstitutional system of residential segregation uh, because it was created explicitly on a racial basis by government. The segregation of metropolitan areas that we have today is as unconstitutional as the segregation of schools or lunch counters or buses or any of the unconstitutional forms of segregation that we eliminated in the 20th century. And because our residential boundaries were created in an unconstitutional fashion, all of us as Americans have an obligation to remedy it. It's a civil rights violation. And we have have an obligation to redress the segregation that our government on our behalf created. That's the argument of the book. This myth is is incredibly pervasive. And had I not come across your work, I would I kind of had hints of it. My mom was a real estate agent and she talked about redlining. I didn't really know about too much about it. But once the myth crumbles, it just, it's really, it's shocking. I mean, at first it feels shocking. So there's a few questions that seem that come to mind. Was the intent of people, 
in the New Deal and, and beyond, were they were people thinking, let's get them, we're racist and, and we're going to put them down? Was it, I mean, it was more about property values, but myths then? or No, you know, we have never as a country dealt with the legacies of slavery, the legacies of Jim Crow. The New Deal, a democratic administration, a progressive on economic terms administration, the Roosevelt administration, Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the Depression, was a segregationist party, not in the South. There's another misunderstanding that the reason that the New Deal segregated metropolitan areas is because they had to do this to um, accommodate Southern senators and and representatives, that it really wasn't the the intent of the Roosevelt administration. Uh, That's not accurate. One of the stories I tell in the book Uh, Again, not uh, uncovered for the first time by me. But one of the stories I tell in the book is in 1913, Woodrow Wilson took office as president, the first Democratic president elected since the Civil War, who came from the South and was a militant segregationist. Prior to 1913, the uh, federal civil service was an integrated civil service. It wasn't a big civil service like we have today, but what there was of it was integrated. Woodrow Wilson's administration began in 1913, what, uh, uh, 50 years after the end of the Civil War, began uh, for the first time to segregate the federal civil service. The separate washrooms were set up for African-American civil servants. Uh, Curtains were placed in federal office buildings to uh, separate black and white clerical workers. African-American civil servants who were supervising whites, and there were many of them, were fired because that was no longer permitted. Well, one of the largest federal departments at that time in the, during the Woodrow Wilson administration was the Navy Department, the official in the Navy Department responsible for creating segregation in the Navy Department was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was the assistant secretary of the Navy. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I don't suggest in the book, that uh, imposing segregation in 1913 was Franklin Roosevelt's idea, even that he was happy about it. I don't know. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but he certainly didn't object to it. And this was the environment of the Democratic Party in which he matured, grew up, and his entire administration, with a few exceptions, uh, had this view. It's well known uh, that uh, his wife, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, came to um, Washington with the same view. But because Roosevelt was paralyzed, couldn't get out around the country very much, his wife, Eleanor, was his eyes and ears in the country. She traveled a lot. And the more she got to know uh, African-Americans and see the effects of segregation around the country, the more uh, appalled she was about it. And she began to press her uh, husband to try to remedy it. And uh, he was uninterested. He had other priorities. There are many other examples I could give. Uh, I don't talk about in the book about the segregationist policies of the New Deal. I mentioned one other. One of uh, Roosevelt's uh, most trusted advisors was a senator from South Carolina, James Burns. He was so close to Roosevelt uh, in the 1930s that the press referred to him as Mr. Assistant President. Burns in the Senate was the leader of forces to oppose the only civil rights bill that came before the the United States Congress in the 1930s, a bill to ban lynching. Uh, Burns, Roosevelt's closest advisor, was a leader of efforts to uh, defeat that uh, proposal. Burns got up on the floor of the Senate and explained how lynching was necessary to prevent the black men from raping white women. This is the man that Roosevelt then appointed to the Supreme Court 
took from the Senate, appointed to the Supreme Court. And so close was he to Roosevelt that when World War II broke out, um, Roosevelt asked him to resign from the Supreme Court so he could run the domestic economy. So this was the environment of the Roosevelt administration. Now, uh, people are surprised by this because they know that uh, African-Americans developed an allegiance to the Democratic Party during the New Deal. That's understandable. As, as you may know, in 1932, Roosevelt's first election, African-Americans en masse supported Herbert Hoover, not Roosevelt, because Democratic Party was the party of segregation. But the gov- federal government had never before been involved in um, providing economic benefits to uh, working class families in the country. And uh, during the New Deal, in the first term of Roosevelt, A number of programs like the public housing program that I described in the book and employment programs were implemented for the first time. African-Americans for the first time got economic benefits from the federal government during the New Deal, always on a segregated basis. But they chose, uh, for understandable reasons, that uh, segregated benefits were better than no benefits at all during the Depression. And so en masse, uh, African-American voters switched to the uh, Democratic Party uh, in the election of 1936 and gave Roosevelt, helped to give Roosevelt an overwhelming victory. But this was a party of segregation in uh, the 1930s, 1940s, in both the Roosevelt and to a lesser extent, the Truman administration. Uh, Truman desegregated the military for the first time, something that Roosevelt was never uh, willing to do. And um, then that policy was continued really until uh, the Kennedy administration. In 1962, President Kennedy issued an executive order prohibiting federal agencies from imposing segregation, housing agencies from imposing segregation in their housing programs, whether it was mortgage programs or um, public housing. Uh, But that was the first time that uh, the Democratic Party made any moves to uh, oppose segregation in housing programs and in residential uh, neighborhoods around the country. Can you describe in in some of the detail, how did it play out, the racial segregation in the housing policies? Sure. Perhaps the biggest program that the federal government imposed to uh, create segregation was the suburbanization of the country that took place um, to some extent during, but mainly after World War II for returning war veterans. As you know, we were not a suburban country uh, before then. The only people living in suburbs at the time were affluent people who could afford to have cars and drive into their jobs in urban areas where most jobs were. We were a manufacturing economy. All uh, factories had to be located near deep water ports and railroad terminals to get their parts and ship their final products. And workers, white and black, were living uh, in downtown areas near those factories so that they could walk to work or take short streetcar rides. Uh, The uh, federal government began a program slowly, but then really ramped it up after uh, World War II and directed it primarily to returning war veterans to get all white working class families, lower middle class families, to move out of urban areas where they uh, might be renting apartments in either segregated public housing or in the private market, move them out of those urban areas into single family homes in all white suburbs. It was a program that uh, was for whites only. African-Americans were prohibited from participating in this program. They could easily have afforded those homes at the times they were created. Perhaps the the best known of these suburbs, uh, the largest one that was created in this time was Levittown, east of New York City, 
uh, 17,000 homes in one place. But by mentioning this one, I don't mean to imply that this was any in any way unusual. Uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of these suburbs created uh, subdivisions around the country by the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration after World War II. A builder like Levitt could never have assembled the capital uh, to buy the land and build uh, 17,000 homes on it. Uh, he had no buyers at the time. No bank would be crazy enough to lend them the money to do that. They thought it was a crazy idea. They didn't think anybody would want to live in the suburbs. We were in a suburban country at the time. The only way that Levitt and any of these other builders, developers, uh, could um, build these subdivisions was by going to the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration, submitting their plans for the subdivisions. Uh, those plans uh, had to include the architectural design, the materials they were going to use, the layout of the streets, and an explicit commitment never to sell a home to an African-American. The Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration even required Levitt and many of these other builders to uh, place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. And this was not the action of rogue bureaucrats. This was an explicit policy of the Federal Housing Administration, the, the manual that the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration uh, distributed to uh, developers around the country. Uh, I'm sorry, they distributed the manual to appraisers around the country whose job it was to evaluate the application of developers for federal bank guarantees to build these subdivisions. The manual said explicitly that no federal bank guarantee, uh, guarantee of a bank loan could be given to a developer who is going to create a non-segregated subdivision. The manual went so far as to say you couldn't even recommend a federal bank guarantee uh, to a, a builder who is going to build a, a subdivision, a, a project that would be all white if it was going to be located near where African-Americans were living because the federal manual said that would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. That's what the federal manual said. Uh, there's nothing de facto about this. This was a racially explicit, unconstitutional program practiced uh, by the federal government. Those homes at the time, uh, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, are sold for, in today's money, about $100,000 a piece, something easily affordable to returning war veterans, black or white, especially returning war veterans, because no down payment was required for them. Whites, as I say, were subsidized to do this, African-Americans prohibited. Well, today, as you know, uh, the homes in those suburbs uh, no longer sell for $100,000 a piece. They sell for $300,000, $500,000, sometimes a million dollars or more, depending on the region of the country. The white uh, working class families who became middle class as a result of this program uh, gained wealth equity as their homes appreciated in value. They used that wealth to send their children to college. They used it to take care of emergencies, perhaps medical or temporary unemployment. They used it to subsidize their retirements, and they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. African-Americans were prohibited by federal policy from participating in this wealth-generating program. The result is that today, Although African-American incomes on average are about 60% of white incomes, family incomes, African-American household wealth is only about 5% of white household wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio 
is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that demands a remedy, demands a redress from Americans uh, today. That wealth gap determines much of the racial inequality that we have today. It perpetuates the segregation that we have. It creates a, an achievement gap of children in school because African-Americans live in less well-resourced neighborhoods, less healthy neighborhoods. It creates uh, health disparities between African-Americans and whites. African-Americans, as you know, have a shorter life expectancies, uh, higher rates of cardiovascular disease uh, because they live in segregated neighborhoods that they don't have the resources uh, to um, uh, move out of. Uh, it creates uh, the uh, mass incarceration and police violence that we spent so much time demonstrating about last summer. I'm not suggesting that the um, police would never uh, uh, discriminate against young African-American men if it weren't for segregation. But when we concentrate those men in single neighborhoods uh, where they have no access to good jobs or transportation to get to those jobs, the uh, police assume the stance of an occupying force, like any colonial force. And uh, that results in, in a mass incarceration that we uh, are so troubled by today. And let me conclude this, uh, by this point by making one other. I think that the segregation that we created, that's perpetuated by this particular program, the wealth gap, and there were many, many others that I describe in the book to uh, impose segregation. But the, the segregation that we've created by this wealth gap has a very, very frightening consequence that we're very much aware of today. And that is the um, very, very uh, large uh, political polarization that we have in this country. That's not entirely racial, but it largely tracks racial lines. I'm not suggesting that without segregation, it would entirely disappear. But how can we ever expect to develop the common national identity that we need to preserve this democracy if so many African-Americans and whites live so far from each other? that they have no ability to empathize with each other, no ability to understand each other's life experiences. So those are the ongoing consequences of the unconstitutional policies that uh, the federal government followed in the mid 20th century that we have an obligation to remedy. And there were many, many other policies that were followed as well that I describe in The Color of Law. And many other policies all going, not all, but many going during decades, generations. Yeah. As long as this history has been covered up by myth, it's very easy to say, well, yeah, there was something in the past and think, well, it'll just get back to normal. But it's not like a little blip that happened then. It's like we got onto a different track and that track is increasingly diverging, not kind of going parallel. It's This is the start of something unless we deliberately act. I mean, if it was deliberately done we have to deliberately act to undo these things because they are the track continues to diverge in, in, in a different direction than what you just described, this not homogenous, but a, an American democracy where people speak to each other and, and disagree, sure, but communicate and, and, and collaborate and work together. Well, I, I yes. Uh, and, you know, the reason I gave you that example just now of the many, many examples that I, I, I describe in the book of racially explicit federal, state, and local policies is because that example explains why this is not history. That, poli that particular policy of the federal government uh, to suburbanize the white population and create a, this enormous wealth gap is an ongoing cause of segregation today. You know, we passed... Um, in 1968, the Fair Housing Act. We said uh, in that Fair Housing Act, we prohibited ongoing discrimination in the sale and rental of housing 
in effect, we were saying to African-Americans, okay, uh, you're no longer prohibited from moving into these uh, communities that we created for whites only. You're now free to move there if you wish. But those houses are no longer affordable to working class families of either race if they don't have down payments, if they don't have the wealth for down payments. Uh, homes at Levittown, for example, homes there now sell for $400,000 or sometimes more. Uh, as a result of the Fair Housing Act, a few African-Americans have been able to afford to move into Levittown. Levittown is now about, um, oh, between one and two percent African-American. And this is true of many, many of these suburbs that were created around the country. Levittown is located in a neighborhood that's about 15 percent African-American. So the difference between that one percent or two percent uh, that's presently African-American as a result of the Fair Housing Act and the 15 percent that you would expect Levittown to have were it not for this unconstitutional policy that the federal government followed, that's the ongoing effect of these policies. So they're not um, historical curiosities. They determine the racial landscape of today. The people implementing these policies, certain beliefs are driving them, whether they're founded or not. What was going on in the hearts and minds of the people who implemented these? I mean, you talked about Roosevelt, but it must have been a lot of people at a lot of different levels. Sure. As I said, uh, and I'll say it again, we have never dealt with the legacies of slavery or Jim Crow in this country. Leadership at that time, from Roosevelt on down, assumed that African-Americans were an inferior race, and they thought it was perfectly okay to keep that inferior race from polluting white communities. Uh, that was their, their view. The most liberal of them, the most progressive of them, tried to fight to get equal but separate resources for African-Americans. The New Deal did more for African-Americans than any previous administration had done, but always on a segregated basis. If you don't mind my asking, on a personal level, reading these things, how does it feel? How did it feel? I mean, were you discovering things for the first time or were you, I mean, you've come up with a lot. <laughs> well, you know, that's a complicated question. Uh, you know, I, I would be kidding you if I said that somebody writes a book without having any idea that they're going to find out something useful when they begin the research. So I had an inkling that there was more there uh, than um, we were aware of. In the um, early 1960s, or actually mid-1960s, I, uh, I had a job as a research assistant at the Chicago Urban League and worked on a, a lawsuit that uh, became very important, a very important um, a federal lawsuit that went to the Supreme Court against the fact that the Chicago Housing Authority was uh, placing um, a public housing for black families only in black neighborhoods and public housing for whites only in white neighborhoods. So I was aware that there was something there, but I had no idea of the extent of this before I began this this research. The um, I was stunned to see the how many different policies there were that uh, created segregation and all interacted to create a system. So I was aware of a little bit of it, probably more than most people, uh, but uh, not nearly to the extent uh, that I discovered was the case. It feels like it would be a mix of, of rage or confusion, maybe inspiration or relief of like, oh, this is now it makes sense. But I can't imagine it just being like, okay, there's another fact. And maybe also like this has to get out, like a, a calling. But I'm guessing, was it like that? Yeah, I think um, this may surprise you, but I find this research very hopeful. 
because so long as we believed that segregation happened naturally, uh, it's easy to think it can only unhappen naturally. Once we understand that the segregation of this country is the product of explicit policy, then it's logical to conclude that it can be fixed by explicit policy as well, and we ought to get to it. So I found it um, a hopeful exercise to begin to document this. I'm now, let me say, uh, working on a, a new book uh, that describes uh, the policies that we should follow and the actions that ordinary citizens can take to redress segregation that uh, are motivated by the fact that we understand that this is an unconstitutional system. I'm also working uh, with a group of national civil rights leaders who have been uh, inspired by this history uh, to create something uh, we call a new movement to redress racial segregation. And we're going to be uh, hiring organizers to um, help local activists begin committees in their local communities to take action to redress segregation in those communities. Uh, we really have, uh, we'll have four uh, focus uh, areas uh, of these local committees. One is to uh, improve the resources of existing uh, low-income segregated neighborhoods. Second is to prevent the massive uh, dislocation of African-Americans in particular, as, as well as uh, uh, Hispanics in particular, um, from gentrification being pushed out of neighborhoods uh, where they do have housing to uh, more distant, less adequately resourced uh, neighborhoods. Third is to open up all white suburbs that were unconstitutionally created to diverse residents. And the fourth is to stabilize uh, diversity, desegregation where it exists, where the neighborhoods are in transition and are flipping from either all black to all white or all white to all black, which is a, a demographic phenomenon that's happening in many communities in this country. So we were going to uh, uh, launch this uh, new movement to redress racial segregation. Almost a year ago, we had to put it on pause because of the pandemic, because the uh, whole uh, organization of this uh, effort is to um, assist local activists to create local committees. And uh, it's hard to do that with, uh, with social distancing. <laughs> But we're going to relaunch it fairly soon. And uh, let me say, if any of um, your um, listeners want to receive the announcement of this new movement to redress racial segregation, I can uh, give you an email address that they can send uh, their names to, and, and they'll receive this announcement when we launch it. It's, uh, you can send it to Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E, at N-M-R-R-S, the new movement to redress racial segregation, dot org. That's Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E, at N-M-R-R-S dot org. I hope you get flooded with people. No. <laughs> I'm not your Rogan yet. <laughs> <laughs> now it's hard for me not to ask in this past year. Well, I'm going to go back a bit before that. Now that you've learned this history, what does it look like when you see people looking at things who don't know that history? And because I certainly... This in my case, it takes a long time for this to like sink in and and see the depth of it and the comprehensiveness of it. What's it like when you see someone and they they ascribe it to, oh, it's a genetic thing or it's a it's um, private practice led to this or it's just it just happens to be that way? Is it frustrating? Is it confusing? Is it do you feel compassion or empathy? Yes, is a, this was this is a forgotten history. People didn't learn it in school. They didn't, uh, so it's understandable that they don't. Uh, recognize why we're so segregated. 
And uh, that's why uh, I believe that learning this history is liberating. It enables people to see that the conditions that uh, they see around them, that the racial segregation, the racial inequality that they see around them is a deliberately constructed inequality and segregation. And um, we have an obligation as American citizens to redress it. You know, I, uh, the book, The Color of Law, it came out in, um, in 2017 uh, as a hardcover book, like most books do. And then uh, a year later, the, a paperback edition was issued. And when the hardcover book uh, came out, and, and uh, shortly uh, after that, uh, maybe nine, ten months after that, I got an email from a, a young African-American, a recent high school graduate in New Orleans. He had read the book, and uh, he said that uh, he grew up, he looked around him, he saw that uh, African-Americans were poor, whites were rich. He thought that was natural and the way things um, just happened. And he said, then he read the book and he uh, realized that this wasn't natural. This was a constru construction of government. And he said, if he realized, if he had realized uh, when he was in high school that this was a construction, this inequality he saw was a construction of government, he would have worked harder in high school. He would have thought that he could accomplish more than he, he did. Now, that's, um, you know, social psychologists uh, call this stereotype threat. African-Americans uh, see themselves as being disadvantaged and believe that that's a natural condition uh, to them and depress their effort as a result because they believe that greater effort's not going to make any difference. Well, whites also have stereotypes that are based on looking at the inequality around them. They assume it's natural for them to be wealthier than African-Americans. They assume it's natural for African-Americans uh, to be in uh, subordinated, less advantageous conditions. And if they realize that it's not natural, that this is the construction of government, then it's possible for them to overcome those stereotypes and begin to take action uh, to redress the inequality. So that's what I hope the consequence of learning this history might be. Yeah. Now I'm going to share some personal stuff, if you don't mind, <laughs> that uh, after my parents got divorced, my two sisters and I went back and forth between houses. And my mom, we were in, we were the, I think one of three white families in a very uh, economically depressed neighborhood. All the other, all the other, there's a row house, a block of row houses in uh, Northwest Philadelphia, Germantown and high crime, low income. And that was a formative part of my life, living in a living as a racial minority for half my time. The other half was in Manary, which was a desegregated. Is a um, actually my mom told me recently that when she and my father were looking for a place to settle down, the agents would ask, "Do you want to live in an integrated neighborhood or whites only?" And she, I don't think she told me that before recently. Uh, that came about. This podcast led me to talk to her about these things. Uh, There's actually a whole episode in which she uh, recorded the conversation. But then, then she said something that was an offhand comment, but has really, this has forced me to process a lot. We lived there and then we moved away. We could move away. It's not just that we did, that we could. And I don't know how much, to what extent this would be in the late 70s, early 80s, there'd be redlining or the laws were still in place. I'm not sure. But this is really like how this plays out in my life and the, what I've seen in the world, how I would have seen things differently because it, it really kills me when people say to me, Josh, you've had privilege. 
and I feel like I've worked really hard. And now your work reveals much more environmental, how things have changed for me, what was available to me that I wouldn't have been aware of. Before your presentation of it, it felt like there was a lot of debate, but you have not relying on objective criteria. I don't know how, I don't know where this is playing out. I don't know where I'm going with this. What you're describing, you know, I mentioned the four areas that the new movement to redress racial segregation is going to focus on. And the fourth one I mentioned was stabilizing diverse communities where they exist. One of them that I'm going to be focusing on in uh, writing this new book is Mount Airy. It's actually one of the examples uh, of um, a relatively, not completely, not permanently, but a relatively successful effort to stabilize desegregation. Perhaps the best example nationwide is uh, Oak Park outside Chicago. And there are a few others, but there were attempts um, in that period to stabilize desegregation. And um, Mount Airy is, is one of them. That has been something that in my family has always been important. Uh, do you also mention Weaver's Way Co-op by any chance where we went shopping all the time? Well, I haven't written this yet, so I'm still uh, doing research. I, I, I'm sure I'll come across it. <laughs> it's been something that for us has been a very tight community where you just meet people. But now it's a co-op. It's, you know, at, at the beginning, people would drive down to South Philly to get the, uh, a big shipment of food that the families would split up. And different people took turns to save money. And it's grown into a big community center. I think that's, I haven't lived there in a long time. Yeah, it's hard not to also think of, of you look at race, and then there are also lots of other ways that communities can be split apart or can be divided. So there's Saxon gender and national backgrounds, language. Did you look into those things too? Well, uh, it's not the same. It's not the same. Of course, there are um, communities where there are clusters of Italians or Jews or Irish. That's appropriate. People uh, do want to live in communities where their cultural traditions are shared. And if we ever had a desegregated country, there would be communities with clusters of African-Americans, just as there are Jewish neighborhoods and Italian neighborhoods and Irish neighborhoods. But that's not what we have today. We have uh, Jews are not in those neighborhoods because by federal policy, they were prohibited from living anywhere else. Italians aren't in those neighborhoods because by federal policy, they were prohibited from living anywhere else. And when people have a choice of where they'd like to live and the kind of community they'd like to live, some will um, prefer to live in, in communities where people of their um, race or ethnic background are more pr predominant and others will feel uh, less motivated to do that. But people need to have the choice. And when it comes to race, that choice has not been, been um, present. Now, uh, uh, some of your listeners, I'm sure, are going to object. They say, oh, well, Jews were discriminated against as well in housing. And so were Italians. And that's, of course, true, but not uh, to the extent that African-Americans were not merely discriminated against, but absolutely prohibited from uh, moving out of ghetto neighborhoods in the mid-20th century. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. 
Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I've also, and I can't cite any sources here, but I understand that recent African immigrants to the United States do better than African-Americans who have been here a long time. And this seems to explain that. Am I reading that right? Well, that's a, you're partially right. Yes. Uh, you know, immigrants are a self-selected group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the people who immigrate are better educated, more highly motivated uh, than their, the national group that they come from. So it's, of course, not surprising that if you take the take Nigerians, for example, the most uh, highly motivated Nigerian families uh, with most ambitious, frequently best educated, but not always, but the most highly motivated Nigerian families are the ones who come to the United States. It's not surprising that they are going to do better than the average African-American who is a descendant of American slaves. Yeah, so there's that selection effect. I just thought that there would be also on top of that if you're, they're weighted, they're people who are in communities where they have not been able to accumulate wealth, they've not been able to get access to the same education, that that's going to hold, it seems like that's an additional effect hmm. or a set of additional effects. Well, as I say, the Nigerians, I'm just speaking that as an example, Nigerians have had access to education who come here disproportionately, uh, not all, but um, uh, many of them who come here with more education than their country people, on average. There's something else that I'm trying to get imagined, and this might be beyond the scope of, of your work, but if people, say, in the 40s and 50s, looked at what was happening, probably a lot of them would think, well, this is, this is, it should be this way, it's normal. Are there things that you see today, whether related to race or anything else, that you imagine a generation or two or three or a century from now, people looking back and saying, I can't believe people in the year 2020 or 2021, did looked at things that way? I don't know. But I do know that, um, you know, when people uh, become familiar with this history, they are uh, stunned that people in the mid-20th century looked at things that way. I guess I'm wondering, could people back then, might there have been something gnawing at the back of their minds or their hearts saying, maybe what we're doing is not quite right? Oh, of course. Of course. You know, I... Uh, Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the excuses that you frequently hear is that uh, that was the that was what people believed at the time. You can't fault them for it, and uh, that might be more plausible if everybody believed it. But there were always dissenters, always people who had an alternative view that the public had access to. There were some members of the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal who uh, objected to um, the policies of segregation that the the government was following. The Secretary of the Interior, Harold Dickies, uh, was a uh, former president of the uh, Chicago NAACP. And um, he was aware that there was, uh, this was not the best policy, even though he was responsible for implementing much of it. Uh, the Secretary of Labor, Francis Perkins, uh, was uh, not in favor of these policies, but had uh, no ability to persuade the administration to do otherwise. And as I mentioned, uh, the uh, wife of the president, Eleanor Roosevelt, was a fairly outspoken advocate of a different point of view. So you can't claim that it was the spirit of the times and that people didn't know any better 
when there were people who uh, were expressing an alternative view. And when I talk about people expressing an alternative view, I'm not, uh, I'm not even mentioning uh, the very uh, outspoken African-American organizations, the NAACP, that objected to these uh, policies. So I think people had an alternative, but because uh, there was never any national pressure uh, to confront the legacies of slavery at that time, uh, as, as you know, we've been uh, made more aware of it by publicity about this history recently, uh, with the end of Reconstruction as a result of a corrupt deal between the two parties uh, in uh, 1876, with the end of Reconstruction. Gradually uh, after that, we began to reimpose a, a, a very um, a extreme second-class citizenship on African-Americans that had um, that Reconstruction had been fighting to um, end. And uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, it took a long time to reimpose this. As I said, the federal civil service wasn't segregated until 1913, what, uh, 35 years after that corrupt deal. So all this unconstitutional activity going on, it feels as if there was not a uh, critical mass or coalescing of, of enough forces to get over the hump of reversing these things. And if people, see, I, I'm trying to get it, if people could sense, if, and if there's a whole nation full of people or a large part of that nation feeling like something's up, something's up, I got to do something. This podcast, a lot of this podcast is about the environment and sustainability. And I feel that there's a lot of people who have a sense that now it's looking toward the future of a uh, not so bright future if we don't clean up our act. And I feel like there's a lot of people who feel like there's something, maybe we shouldn't be so profligate with our wastes, uh, with the fossil fuels. And if there was something that could have earlier then coalesced, uh, hit a critical mass of, of activity, of action, maybe we could learn from that today. I'm trying to think of if you were transported back to 1950 or 1960, or could you have done anything differently? Could you have activated people's consciences to act, to group together and, and organize? Well, you know, the, um, as you know, there was a very, very active civil rights movement in the 19, beginning in the 1950s, really, or well, beginning earlier than that, but really ramping up in the 1950s into the 1960s. It, uh, engaged in marches, demonstrations, civil disobedience. People lost their lives in that struggle. Many were seriously injured. We spent uh, some time this past summer memorializing uh, John Lewis, uh, the congressman from Atlanta, who was a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the 1960s and was beaten mercilessly on several occasions, uh, most prominently when he tried to uh, lead a march for voting rights in uh, Alabama. So there's a very, very uh, militant, aggressive uh, civil rights movement. It began with very little political support anywhere in the country. And by the end of the 1960s, it had succeeded in uh, desegregating uh, public transportation and public accommodations and employment. And as I said, uh, ongoing um, segregation, ongoing discrimination in the sale and rental of housing. But it left untouched this biggest segregation of all, uh, which is the every metropolitan area in this country is residentially segregated. And I think it's time for um, us as Americans to pick up the mantle uh, again and resume and continue the uh, 
civil rights revolution that uh, that really ended at the end of the 1960s. When I think of the civil rights actions going on in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I think of the leadership coming from African-Americans. Was there an organization that I didn't know about? Could there have been more organization on the parts of the people writing the laws and, and maintaining the laws? Because if there had been action there, they might have been able to change them more easily. Well, any civil rights movement, including a new one, must be led by African-Americans. Uh, but it can't be um, led only by African-Americans because African-Americans don't have uh, the political power in this country to alone uh, address uh, segregation. I don't think you start with uh, political leaders. There's no uh, political base at this point to implement the kinds of policies to redress racial segregation. They're well known. Everybody knows what we need to do to uh, fix this problem, to remedy the uh, unconstitutional actions of the federal government and state and local governments. I can mention a few of them. We should be, for example, uh, implementing an affirmative action program in housing in which African-Americans who would deny the opportunity to accumulate wealth by moving to uh, neighborhoods that were uh, appreciating in value are subsidized now to be able to move to those neighborhoods. We should be abolishing zoning laws that uh, exclude anything but single-family homes on large lot sizes from all white suburbs. We should be reforming some programs that we have to subsidize uh, uh, the housing for low-income, particularly uh, African-American and Hispanic families that reinforce segregation today because the largest federal program to do that is the low-income housing tax credit and it disproportionately places uh, affordable housing in existing low-income neighborhoods because it's easier to do it there than to face community opposition and higher land costs elsewhere. So the policies uh, are well known. Uh, there's not political support for them. And that's why uh, a grassroots movement needs to begin to uh, make it uh, uncomfortable for political leaders to uh, maintain the patterns of segregation that we created. It can't start with political leaders. No matter how well-intentioned they are, there's no political support for the kinds of policies I just mentioned at the present time. But there was no political support for the civil rights victories of the 1950s and 1960s before a civil rights movement mobilized and began to, to create that political support. One of the things that brought me to you, and I'm, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to get into this because of time, but the starting with the environment, it's not obvious that I would go into look at race and things like that, but it was learning about the abolitionists in England in the late 1700s, early 1800s, people like Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce, and also, I guess, to some extent, William Lloyd Grayson here later, that where people took it upon themselves to say, you know, once we've seen this, we cannot unsee this anymore and we must act on it. And I have to say that before reading your work, if someone, affirmative action seemed, there seemed much more two sides to it. Now, not so much. So to approach it from, you said it has, there has to be some impetus from, from African-Americans. Also, I mean, I have to say that your work, the presentation of it, coming at it from, look at this history. It's clear. It's, it's you know, these are objective criteria. You can look it up yourself. This is what's been here this whole time. That is just, it's like the scales falling from your eyes. In my case, from my eyes. 
going from looking at these things from two sides to looking at looking at from a historical perspective seems like a major shift. It was for me. I think I have to ask because I know you only had one hour. When does the next book come out? And can I have you back then? Well, you know, as you uh, as you know, I'm an old man. I don't have to be accountable to anybody anymore. So the book will be done when it's done. Uh -huh. <laughs> I can't tell you when that will be. And if I'm around, I'll certainly be glad to come back at that time. Okay, then now I have to mention one other book. I presume you're familiar with The Power Broker and Robert Moses and Robert Carroll. Oh, sure, sure. Does that comparison get made a lot too? Because that explains a lot. Living in Manhattan, living in New York, I look around, I'm like, oh, now I see why it's this way. Well, I'm certainly not comparing myself to uh, Robert Carroll. He's a giant. Uh, I'm just the midget. But he is, um, he is one of my heroes, as he is of any nonfiction writer, uh, both in The Power Broker and in his, especially to me, his um, multi-volume uh, biography of Lyndon Johnson, which he spent his life working on. And uh, like me, he's an old man, and I hope he finishes the, the last volume, which he's working on now. That's what made me think of it, yeah. I'll close with how I close everything. Is there anything I didn't think to ask or anything you want to say directly to the listeners? No, I, I could speak about this for three years. Uh, there are so many other policies I could have described. Uh, mass violence organized by police to drive African-Americans out of neighborhoods that they had uh, legitimately purchased or rented uh, that were white. Uh, the public housing program that I referenced that segregated whites and African-Americans at a time when public housing was the most desirable housing available. So we didn't have time to go into all these many policies. We don't need to. Uh, they're all uh, documented in the color of law. And uh, I guess I'm just going to repeat that once we know and understand that our racial boundaries were unconstitutionally created, that imposes on us as American citizens an obligation to redress it. I'll include links to start to get people on your work. And Richard Rothstein, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm recording these words the day after the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict on murdering George Floyd. Many interviews I've seen feature people of color saying, finally, some justice. Others I see questioning, is systemic racism really something, or is it just a buzzword? Slavery ended so long ago, it's so easy to believe, and therefore we should just keep treating everyone equal. Then equality will come about. We should not treat people differently. Richard's work shows why finally some justice makes sense. It shows why centuries of injustice in black and white letters on the page don't end in years. They don't even end in generations, not without determined efforts from everyone. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.